Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is inflation cooling enough for the Fed? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, April 12, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Imran Laka, founder of Options Inside. Imran, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again, Ash. Oh, man, it's always a pleasure to have you on Real Vision Daily Briefing. I enjoy these conversations. Uh, you bring a level of depth and analysis that I always find intriguing uh, and challenging uh, to follow because you have so much insight from the options perspective that I don't ordinarily consider. Uh, Imran, obviously, big day today, CPI print out. Uh, big picture, what are your thoughts? What's happening? So, yeah, I mean, all eyes were on on CPI. Um, it, you know, the, the options market was only pricing at about 1% break even on the straddle which basically means that's the expected move. And you know, if you had compared that to CPI numbers previous months, you know, going back into the end of last year, it was double that, right? So, so clearly the market is thinking or was thinking that it was going to be less market moving now uh, as the shift has now gone towards the banking and the credit concerns and, and the jobs market. So as we can see, we have chopped around quite a bit, but net-net we didn't move too much on the CPI number. Um, but it has come in with um, deceleration. So we've seen um, core services less shelter, which is like the main thing everyone's looking at now, did decelerate. So potentially gives the Fed cover to pause. That's what the market was already looking for. If we look at the rates market. You know, on the back of the banking crisis. So, so the market's kind of got what it wanted to some extent. Uh, why is it selling off though? because everyone was already kind of expecting this, this hasn't necessarily surprised anyone to the dovish side. People might have thought, oh, look, it's a dovish FOMC minutes. It's a dovish number on the CPI. We should get a rally. But you could argue the rally was already pricing that in. So this is just in line with what we expected. I don't know if we can take a look at the chart. Uh, this is a chart from the Wall Street Journal that shows precisely what you were just talking about there, Imran. Uh, this is the chart looking at uh, CPI uh, on an annualized basis for both uh, core uh, and uh, and headline. Let me just go through this uh, for folks who didn't happen to see that print. Month over month, we're up 0.1% uh, actual on a prior of 0.4, as you say, deceleration. Uh, on a year over year basis, 6% prior, current 5%. This, of course, uh, is uh, for the month of March versus February being the prior month. Uh, interestingly enough, as you can see on that chart, uh, obviously more volatility in the headline number than in the X food and energy, that's the core number. Uh, while we're seeing deceleration, less deceleration there than we saw in the headline number, 0.5% previous consensus was 0.4, came in actual 0.4. Uh, at the top of the consensus range though, consensus range being 0.3 to 0.4, pretty narrow range, pretty narrow tolerance, uh, but coming in at the top of that on core X food and energy. Yeah, I mean, but you know, the people look at three month seasonally adjusted numbers and things like that, all different types of measures, whatever you want to look at. But ultimately, Powell kind of signaled that tighter bank lending was going to do some of the work of further hikes, right? And, and that's kind of being confirmed in terms of what we're seeing in the FOMC minutes. A lot of people, some people considered not hiking in the last meeting. Um, so, you know, the, this kind of 
it's not really a pivot yet, but the pause that the market was looking for seems to have been confirmed. Um, the question now is the three three odd cuts that we're expecting by the end of the year, do they materialize? And I think, you know, we're going to find out a lot more information in the coming FOMC meetings and as more data comes through to see how that dis discrepancy between market pricing and the dot plot resolves itself. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because it's an important point. Uh, we had the chair of the New York Fed, uh, John Williams, coming out yesterday saying uh, that he believed that there was probably one more uh, rate hike in store. Uh, give us your sense of what that means, what the context is on that. Obviously, there's an expectation of uh, cuts going forward, but it seems as though we may have one more hike left in us uh, in terms of the Fed's view, at least if the comments yesterday from Mr. Williams are to be taken seriously and literally. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of inertia, right, with these institutions, right? They, they don't want to. They don't want to look like they're just going to turn the Titanic on on every every next data print, right? right. So, so they want you to. They want to guide market expectations a bit more slowly. They can't just suddenly reverse engines. But what they what they are saying is, okay, we think we're done after one more, and like we say, that it's the tighter bank lending that's going to do the work of further hikes, right? So, so I think I think it makes sense them signaling it this way. But, but the question as well is, are the three cuts really three cuts at the market's pricing, or is it more some sort of probability of a load more cuts because we're going to go into a big old credit crisis, right? So rather than, rather than thinking the market's really pricing three cuts to the end of the year, maybe what the market's really pricing is 20% chance of them just taking rates all the way back down, right, because they have to. So, so that's another way of interpreting this kind of discrepancy in the rates market pricing to the, the, the modal outcome may well be that they just hold rates at 5%. But if we get the bad tail outcome on the banking crisis and, you know, the commercial, commercial real estate market, we have all those problems kick off in the coming quarters, then are they going to be forced to really take rates down to like a 1% to 1%, 2%, whatever it is? That, that's what the market has to kind of get its head around over, over coming months, I would say. Yeah, that's very well said. Let me throw this out here uh, just to make the argument because we had uh, Thomas Bark, and this is president of the Richmond Fed out today, 1045 on Bloomberg, uh, making comments that seem hawkish. Let me just read this to you and get your opinion. Quote, I certainly think we are past peak on inflation, but we still have a ways to go. There's still more to do, I think, to get core inflation back down to where We'd like it to be uh, no mystery there. Uh, when you look at that chart that we showed earlier with CPI, they use PC, personal consumption expenditures. We're looking at uh, uh, consumer price index, but bottom line, still way above 2%. Uh, the uh, President Barkin saying, uh, still more work to do. Yeah, I mean, the truth is with all, with all these Fed speakers, I think you, what you need to look at is the market reaction, right? right? And, and the rates market has kind of spoken today, right? Yields haven't moved that much, but but if anything, those those short end yields kind of they they um they came back down, right? So so they're not they're, there's no no one really believes that they're going to be able to be particularly hawkish. It seems. Hey, walk us through that. You talk about the market reaction to it. Uh, tell us what you're looking at, the specific metrics that you're looking at uh, in terms of seeing these rates move, because it's incredibly important, I think, for people to understand what you see on your dashboard uh, and explain that to folks, uh, what it means and why it's significant. Yeah, so you just want to look on, on days like this, you, you kind of want to see what the two years doing, so two-year yield, you want to see what that's doing 
because that's kind of anchoring the front end really, right? Like what the 30 year does, doesn't really tell us a whole lot about rates expectations, right? So really looking at SOFA futures and you're looking at two year rates. Secure overnight financing is what you're talking about. Yeah, but if you, if you if you just look at the two year yield, that gives you a, be, a good feel for what the front end is doing, right? Just to keep it simple. So we're looking at right now, uh, let's just walk through this because we've got uh, some information here. So 3.966, uh, under 4% on the two-year U.S. Treasury yield uh, right now. Obviously, uh, you see that very steep decline today. Uh, what do you? What does that mean? Uh, what is that? the significance of that in terms of how you understand it? Well, it's, it's just basically saying that the, the, there was, you know, nothing hawkish in the reaction, right? So... The two-year yield repriced from above 5% to, you know, as low as 3.6. It's had a little bounce off there, but it's, but it's back below 4% again. So it's just kind of saying that whatever we've heard from the FOMC minutes and what we're seeing in the inflation data is confirming the repricing in the front end of the curve. So even though the jobs data arguably was a little bit more robust on Friday, it seems like the rates market is anchoring more to the idea that yes, we are seeing the disinflation and um, the FOMC minutes confirm that that, that the, the Fed really do res are responding to what they're seeing in the banking system. And you know, they're, they're saying things like the banking system is resilient and all that, but ultimately the tighter lending standards are gonna feed through um, and, and do, work, do the work that the hikes up to potentially when terminal rates were closer to 6%, the work of those last few hikes will be done by the tighter lending standards. That, that's the message that the market is giving. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So for people who are relatively new to this, how do you explain to them what seems to be a palpable disconnect uh, between what Fed bank presidents are saying? I've got the quote in front of me here. This is from yesterday, a Federal Reserve Bank uh, of New York, President John Williams saying uh, that he thinks it's a, quote, a reasonable starting place to think about one more rate hike this year. And yet you see uh, markets, you see actual market participants pricing precisely the opposite, uh, as you point out, the decrease in yield at the front of the curve. How do you explain that disconnect? Because, you know, a lot of the time the market tells the Fed what to do. The Fed, the Fed are looking at lagging data a lot of the time, right? So, the market's always forward-looking, whereas the the Fed are somewhat backward-looking. Um, you know, they they can they can respond to what the market is telling them, and they can make comments that are a bit more forward-looking. But in terms of the data that they're working off, it seems like they're much more backward-looking, right? So, so I think that's what you would put it down to. Uh, so talking about looking forward, let's take a look at some of your indicators. I know we were talking about the VIX uh, offline mm. here just before we started. Uh, walk us through that chart. So we've been we've been calling for the VIX to go lower um, for the last month or so. Um, you know, after we had the, obviously the big blow up up to thirty on the banking crisis, uh, and we were fading that move. Uh, we were buying puts, put calendars, things like that to play a move back down. That worked out pretty well. Uh, we have started taking we started taking those off last week, um, just before Easter. We thought a lot was getting priced in. So now you can see this VIX chart. I mean, VIX is a mean reverting animal, uh, but it's back down to the lower end of the range. That support band between 17 and 18 has kind of held for quite some time. So we think, you know, you'd, you'd literally need the market to just sit still 
and realize a very low level of vol for like two, three months for the VIX to really break down significantly below that support zone. That's not really what we anticipate, um, given there's quite a lot of uncertainty out there with regards to the banking, with regards to policy. So, so we do think it does make sense now from a mean reversion perspective to look to the upside again. Um, rates vol has stayed relatively more elevated than equity vol. So again, rates vol being the big driver of cross-asset volatility you know, since last year, again, gives us some comfort that the VIX will probably be dragged back up again at some point. Um, so just looking at that chart, we can see, right, not a bad time to cover shorts and think about getting long. We then look at the, the next set of charts, Brian. So then this just, this is a few snapshots of what the VIX term structure looks like, right? So this is the, the VIX curve. So just like you have an interest rate curve, you also have the VIX curve, right? So you have different contracts that you can trade on the VIX. So the current curve is that yellow one, which is quite steep and upward sloping. Um, you know, a month ago in the midst of the banking crisis, it was that green one, which is more like a flat line at around 25. Um, about six months ago, say October last year, again, markets were on, on the back foot uh, and vol was quite a bit higher in the mid 20s, and it, but it was an upward sloping curve again. And then a year ago, the blue line, it was even higher and it was inverted or backwardated where you had vol in the kind of mid 30s moving down to around 30 in the back end, right? So it should give you a sense of kind of the range of where the VIX can actually go and the kind of shape that that curve can take, yeah? So right now, it just shows you that we're in quite a low vol regime in terms of the shape of that VIX curve, and it's very steep right now, yeah? And then last chart, so another way we measure that steepness is we, we can compare two contracts on the VIX. We can compare the spread between two VIX contracts. So if I look at, say, the second VIX contract, which right now would be the May contract, versus the fourth one, which would be the July contract, and we look at the steepness of that curve and see where that steepness typically lives, where it trades, well, you can see that going back <coughs> over a year, <coughs> or about a year, sorry, that it's quite, it's at the top of the range, which is basically, it's, it's pretty much as steep as it gets in terms of two-month, four-month contract, right? So that says to me that the two-month contract is quite low, it's quite cheap relative to the four-month contract. So there's not much, to me, it's basically saying there's not much downside in that May contract because it's already priced in a lot of bearishness on volatility, basically, right? And because I, I see volatility turning back up because we've got earnings kicking off, we've got FOMC in early May and fair amount of uncertainty around the FOMC, right? And the signaling that we might get from that meeting and, and the June meeting, I don't think bulls is going to keep getting crushed, right? So I'm using these metrics and these metrics are all pointing to me that May VIX is looking quite good value now, basically. If I asked you to connect the dots a little bit between what we were just talking about uh, on the rates front with the VIX is the idea here, generally speaking, that as you see a combinative monetary policy, you see essentially uh, volatility compression. In other words, you see the VIX decline uh, because you see more accommodative monetary policy. Yeah. So, you know, typically when we've had an accommodative Fed, risk assets have rallied and volatility goes down, right? So, but I would say that the move we've seen in the VIX, yes, it's been helped by the fact that risk assets have done well, but it's been more of a seasonal thing going into Easter, right? So you, you get periods like Christmas, like Easter, where if the market doesn't have a really good reason to move a lot, vol just goes down, right? That, that's a seasonal effect. 
So now that we're passing out of that seasonal effect, you've got another seasonal effect, which is your sell in May and go away effect, right? Which might cause vol to tick back up again, right? And also the fact that the market has priced in a bit of a pause from the Fed and three cuts between now and the end of the year, you could argue that now the risk reward is for more hawkish rhetoric or data to come to surprise markets. And then that would take risk assets lower and that would take um, VIX higher again, basically. So that's the idea. The, the idea is we already had a bit of a dovish repricing in the rates market. We've had risk assets prove to be quite resilient. We know it's been led by those mega cap, mega cap tech stocks. So under the hood, the breadth of the market isn't great, right? So it's just a question of whether those, those big tech stocks are going to start to come back down again. Some people are looking at Apple as a pretty decent short at the moment, um, you know, just from a technical perspective. So if those big cap techs do come down, the rest of the stocks are trading like are not trading well anyway, right? So, so there's there is a potential tactical window for VIX to go up. Now, I'm not looking for a move above 30 or anything silly like that. Just a mean reversion move that takes the VIX from 18, 19 back to 24 to 26 yeah. is pretty doable, I would say. And that, as you said, uh, is something of a floor right now for the VIX at 18. Uh, listen, while we're talking about Fed pivots, I wanted to take a look at something because it's very germane to this conversation. Uh, a clip of a deep dive, the most important macro indicator with Andreas Steno Larson on Essential out today. Uh, let's take a look at that. I'm fairly certain that something will break in the system. Um, we currently see banking turmoil. I think the next shoe to drop could be real estate, um, in particular commercial real estate. And that leaves me with the impression that the recession is just around the corner and that prices will come down sharply into the summer. That is, of course, of uh, relevance to the central bank reaction function of the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think we are within weeks of some kind of pivot. We've already seen the first moves in that direction from the Federal Reserve via various emergency measures. But the next move is more permanent move towards easier monetary policy again. And that will alter quite a few of the trends we've seen um, over the past couple of quarters. I think it's very good news for interest rate sensitive assets. Um, good news for crypto, uh, good news for tech, good news for the Teslas of the stock market. Uh, and it's good news for bonds again. So you just heard from a, a dovish Andreas Stenos Larson. Let me just read uh, out a couple of my key takeaways on this. Uh, so fairly certain that something is going to break in the system. Uh, and that leaves him with the impression that recession is around the corner. Uh, we're in for some kind of a pivot in the next few weeks, he says. Uh, but the next move is going to be toward a more permanent easier money policy. And then he goes on to say, I think it's very good news for interest rates, sensitive assets, good news for crypto, good news for tech, and good news for the Teslas of the stock market. Imran, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the, the old playbook is if rates are going down, stocks are going up, right? We, that's what we've been used to. But, you know, looking back further in history and looking back at the 70s and 80s, some analysis done by Bank of America, they say you should sell the last hike, not buy the last hike, right? So it kind of depends what regime you're in. So 
I don't know the answer, right? I'm not smart enough to know the answer. I'll let Andreas and and, and uh, Mike Hartnett of Bank of America fight it out between themselves. But there, there's two schools of thought here that it's not a given that just because it's the last hike, we should buy, we should party again and buy buy all the tech stocks and crypto again. So I don't know. I think the jury's out still. Uh, people want to party. That's always the risk. <laughs> There's always that bias. Hey, listen, uh, we were talking a little bit off camera about the mechanism by which you gain exposure to the VIX. Uh, a couple of this, different options there. Uh, talk us through that. Explain the pros and cons and why you do what you do to get VIX exposure. Yeah, so, so it's pretty tricky to buy VIX, right? Because, <clears throat> you know, you can't buy VIX spot. So you have to buy VIX futures. The problem with buying VIX futures is they, they experience what we call a roll down because they trade at a premium to the actual VIX spot. So if you hold them for too long, through the passage of time, they just roll down against you and, you and you lose money if you don't get a nice big VIX spike. So you're kind of fighting against that time element, right? Um, now, one way to mitigate that, and this is what I teach my subscribers and, and, and I, you know, this is the work that I do, is you, know, you can structure option trades that give you upside exposure to the VIX. But again, those of you who trade options know that you have a time decay element you have to pay. So if you buy calls on VIX, they're typically very expensive as well. So what you have to do is you have to buy like call spreads or call butterfly type structures that actually take advantage of the upside vol on VIX being really expensive. And you can actually earn some premium back through selling the upside. So the type of structures I'm talking about are where you buy, say, the May VIX 20 calls and you'll sell some higher strikes against them, maybe the 25s or the 30s, and then you'll buy something even higher just to cover your tail risk, basically. So it'd be like a, a one by two by one or a two by three by one, whatever the hell it is. It's like some funky broken wing call fly structure that doesn't decay badly, that you spend you know X amount, and if the VIX goes to your sweet spot of 25 or whatever, you make five or 10 times the amount that you spend. So you get leverage to that view, but it's quite time specific. And the reason it is done that way is so you don't just bleed carry and bleed theta like you would do otherwise if you were just buying the futures or buying the calls. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, theta being time decay. Lots of questions are coming into us. Got some great ones here. Let's just jump in and start hitting these. First one comes just from John Ayers from the Real Vision website. He says, everyone I respect is bearish on equities, like 3,600 on the S&P when, question mark, question mark, question mark, we should point out uh, S&P 500 closing out the day uh, at 4,092 uh, or a fractional equivalent thereabouts. If only we knew the answer to that question. Um, I, I would say a lot of shorts have been added in the near term. So sentiment's a bit bearish right now. So heading into earnings, you know, we're, we're back at this kind of near this 4,200 level we got close to again. Everyone seems, a lot of strategists out there seem to think that's a that's a no-brainer sell level. Um, so so sentiment's definitely got bearish again. Um, obviously, bank earnings are due. I wouldn't be surprised to see a squeeze, right? You know, if you, if you ask yourself, you know, why why have we rallied so much in the near term? You know, I was calling for a vol sell-off into Easter and the fact that markets had got a bit panicky on the banking stuff. And I, we were seeing measures, policy measures that were going to try and ease some of the banking stress. So I was like, okay, vol's a sell here because you've got the seasonals working for you and you've got these guys panicking to some extent. 
and the rates market is kind of almost forcing their hand to pause as well. So a lot of factors that were quite bullish and quite bearish for vol. Um, but now that's, yeah, and you've had, and when that happens, when vol comes down, you get vol control people who are buying, have to buy exposure, the CTAs, the trend following guys, they've been buying, but the discretionary, the discretionary community is all pretty much sitting on their hands because they, they think this market, this market is a basket case and they can see the writings on the wall, right? So, so if we're still in that state of play and we still need to wait, you know, a while to see the data, to see the Fed, yeah, is it the last hike? Will they confirm it's the last hike in the next meeting, et cetera? Discretionary guys are not really going to be buying this market. So, so then it's the marginal actor is probably still the systematic types like the CTAs. And from the data that I'm seeing, CTAs are likely to still buy this thing, right? Unless there's a big sell-off for some reason. So you might get April continuing to squeeze and continuing to rally. So I, I wouldn't be putting on bearish trades that expire in April and, and really counting on them working, right? So I think if you want to put on bearish trades, you know, I'm looking at things like June as the earliest. Um, I'm not even that convinced in doing them in equities because equity just has a habit of being overly resilient in the face of so much bearish news, right? So I quite like the idea of credit. I quite like the idea of HYG downside, maybe doing things in HYG to the downside in June or even September to buy yourself plenty of time for the bearishness to come and the credit market to wake up to it and reprice credit spreads higher. So those are the type of things. So I, I wouldn't be in a rush to play the bear trade. Getting into the bear trade and getting out of your longs makes a lot of sense. But, you know, don't, don't expect it to happen in the next few weeks, right? I'd be pretty surprised if there was anything too dramatic to the downside by then. What does your data show in terms of the uh, CTA type uh, commodity trading advisor versus the uh, discretionary funds uh, in terms of the, the magnitude of what's being pushed in markets right now? Yeah, like I said, I, I kind of lean on the, the reports that Goldman's put out about um, the CTAs, right? And, and you know, the, the, the orders of magnitude are in the tens of billions that they need to buy over the next, you know, few weeks or whatever it is, if markets are flat or higher, right? So I'm just saying that there are, there are pockets of time where that CTA flow is going to have more marginal impact than, than it otherwise would. Because there's no one really offsetting it, basically, right? So, so if you already had some hedge funds, you know, we've seen that the 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 open interest in S and P shorts has gone up, right? So there's been some shorting of 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 futures on this rally, uh, and then we know the CTAs are probably still buyers, and then you've got the asset, the slower moving asset managers who are basically seeing this banking crisis come out of nowhere. They're not going to be rushing to buy the market here, basically. They're going to be looking for that uncertainty to kind of go away. So they're just going to be in wait and see mode to see what, what the data looks like and what the Fed says, basically, right? We're not really going to know that until probably the June FOMC meeting. Yeah, very well explained. Next question comes to us from Andrew Sun on Twitter, Andrew Sun underscore 83. And the question is, inflation came down again and Fed minutes show voting members are now expecting a lower terminal rate with a mild recession. That's good news, right? Why are the indexes being sold and cryptos down today? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, you don't want to fall into that trap of thinking that every market move has to be explained by the news flow that day, basically, right? So, you know, I, I would say 
the news flow is kind of in line with what markets were already thinking and expecting and positioning for. So, so really, this is just a, a mean reversion type movement of the rally that we've seen up till now, right? Crypto's had a storming rally, right? Bitcoin smashing its head through 30K was pretty impressive. So for just to see a bit of mean reversion, and it's not even that big, right? Just a tiny bit of mean reversion for something like Bitcoin. I don't even consider it even a real move, to be honest. Yeah, and by the way, there are, uh, to follow up on your point, uh, sort of innumerable things that can cause short-term market gyrations, uh, everything from positioning uh, to just idiosyncratic uh, types of exposure that institutions have that could cause cascade effects. Uh, so it's very difficult to uh, explain or tie on a one-to-one -one basis news flow uh, to markets consistently, particularly when the magnitude is relatively low. Uh, with that said, Andrew Lung, YouTube, uh, was the, quote, record shorts amount going around on Fintwit referring to OPEX, options expiry, uh, on the third week, not for today's CPI print? No, uh, the record shorts that I saw was talking about S&P futures, right? It's not, uh, I don't think it's a case of that was, that, that short is just coming on for the CPI print and then it's going to get unwound. No, I, I don't think that's, I think it's more to do with a lot of, a lot of, prominent strategists saying that 4,200 is kind of your top side limit on S&P, right? So, so people will be adding, people, people who are long will be happy to hedge some of that long out at the top end of that range. And then the more specky shorts like the hedge funds will, wouldn't mind having a go at it. And, and that's an interesting thing as well. People are opting to sell futures rather than buy puts. So if you look at SKU, which is the kind of differential between put vol and call vol, Skew's actually not not going going bid, right? It's not really catching a bid because people are saying, well, if there's such limited upside to the market from here, I don't need to worry about buying puts. I just I can just sell the market basically, right? So so that's that's also showing us that people are happily sort of de-risking their their exposure to equities at this top end of the range, and so they don't need to buy those puts, which also tells you that vol doesn't necessarily need to explode if we were to trade down back below. 4,000, don't expect the VIX to go at 30, basically, right? Because if everyone's already short, they're enjoying that move down. They're not going to be reaching for puts. By the way, we have a lot of great questions coming into us. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, and I don't think we're going to be able to get to all of them. But I do want to ask this one from Ralph Humphrey, one of our regular viewers, because it's an interesting one. Uh, Imran tweeted a week or so ago that buying vol and how it isn't a waste of time, as many say. Can he expand upon that? Or better, can he explain his sniper approach to buying options? Yeah, so, so I put a tweet out. Um, it was an article that I wrote, um, based on an article that I wrote. And, and it's basically saying, is buying options a waste of time? Because a lot of the time, people who buy options just lose money, right? And so and they end up deciding, concluding that buying options is a waste of time. And, and, and uh, having done it over many years... Yeah, I, don't get, I'm not claiming I haven't lost money buying options. I've probably lost more money buying options than I have selling options. That's the truth. But what I've learned about buying options is that when they make you money, you need to take the money. Right? You need to know how to monetize when you are long options. Right. So you need to have you need to be good at selecting what you're going to buy and why you're buying it and picking the right time frame and all those things and trying to find the value on the curve the value in the volatility surface for what you think is going to work. But then when you get a move, you don't just sit there, rabbit in the headlights and not do anything with it, right? You, 
and, and just think, oh, I, I'm not going to touch this until it's 100x, right? Because <laughs> if you do that, you know, maybe once in 10 years, you'll get 100x if you're lucky, but you're going you're gonna to lose a lot of money on the way. So, so you've basically got to say, once I hit 2x, 3x or whatever in this option, what am I going to do with it? Okay, because if I'm still, if I've still got the same view, I don't feel like monetizing it because it's my view is going well. I'm making money. Right. Well, I don't, but but I need to know how to restructure it and take take chips off the table and roll that position or do something with it that if it then mean reverts back the other way, I don't just lose all my money and, and I haven't made anything basically. Right. So option, if you know how to use options properly, then you can take profit and restructure. So those of you who follow my options overlay portfolio. That's what I'm doing all the time. So the people will see when I when I allocate a certain amount of capital to an option strategy and it works, I'm always thinking about how can I bank that now or how can I bank some of that now to then lock that in and then maybe I'll free ride with, with whatever portion I keep. But, you know, you can't just blindly sit there always buying options and just waiting for them to make you rich because that's 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 a way to get poor very quickly. Talking about learning more about options, we're going to have an announcement in just a second about something happening tomorrow. Uh, but Imran, we've obviously talked about a lot of different topics here uh, from a macro perspective, from a trading perspective, from the options perspective. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and listeners with from this conversation. Yeah, so I just think, you know, if, if, you've, if you were with me on the short vol call, I think you want to be taking some shorts off the table. Um, I'm still leaning a little bit long the market, but I've definitely de-risked i've probably taken two-thirds of my delta off um to the market uh, and i'm just going to let the market kind of tell me when to take the rest off basically right and, I, and i'm going to be putting on more medium term bears that because i know it might just take a bit longer for the market to kind of start to actually respond to to the weakening economy the issues in the banking sector things like that so that, that's kind of my takeaway and do you have something happening at the end of this month that you wanted to mention as well? Yeah, so we we well, I used to do lots of boot camps like every couple of months, like virtual boot camps, um, where I go through my whole options syllabus. Uh, we've we've obviously rebranded Options Insight about six months ago um, with all our new products and stuff. But we are running one of our good old option trading boot camps again, uh, new and improved. Uh, we've got a couple of guests appearing on there as well. My good friend Darius Dale will be on there for some Q and A, as will Greg. Um, from Genesis Volatility, now Amber Data, head of derivatives over there, talking about crypto options as well. So that's happening on the 29th and 30th of April. Um, you can find out more about it on our website, uh, options-insight.com, uh, and we'd love to see you all there. Imran, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Always enjoy these conversations. You too, mate. Good to see you. Thanks so much for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. in London. Something else I want to let you know about, uh, Imran will be back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern time with me, where he'll be breaking down his options dashboard and helping to answer any questions you may have about trading options. That's for members only. So if you're not a member, you can join using the link in the description and join our community. Hope to see you then. Take care, everybody. Have a great afternoon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.